My name is Blue Stocking, and I will be your librarian and host for the next hour or so. If you are a returning listener, as always, I thank you from the bottom of my cold little heart for continuing to tune in. And if this is your first time in the dollhouse, uh, please come in, have a seat, get comfortable. But do be aware that this show, because of the way I cover books, it does overflow with spoilers. Uh, so if that is an issue for you, then I would suggest that you turn back now and read the books that are um, listed in the title and then come back and give me a visit. I will be here. Uh, Going to be kind of light on current events today because I honestly just don't have the energy for it. Um, everything is so weird. <laughs> the entire world is just weird right now and the government is shut down. And government workers don't know when they're going to get paid. And the military's, you know, the military families aren't going to get their death benefits. But our politicians continue to get paid. So how does that make sense? I don't know. Um, so we're going to move on to a few other things. I do need to make a corrections corner. Uh, the last episode, the Ken Liu episode, the song that I played was by Old Bridge Rhythm Band. And I had a, a, a chunk of, te- of audio right after the song where I talked about how amazing they were and how we saw them in Kerrville and uh, talked to them for a few minutes and that they were troopers for performing in the cold. But somehow <laughs> that chunk of text talking about them got lost somewhere. Um, and so I think it pretty much cut right from the music into the into the, the part two without talking about them. So that was the old bridge rhythm band. Uh, they have a lady saw player, which is I love saws, musical saw anyway. It was so good. Um, and they were really cool because when I talked to them, I asked them if I could play one of their songs on my show and that I couldn't afford to license it. And they're like, oh, just pay for the download. And I said, OK, I will do that. So I paid for the download and played the song. And I hope you guys liked it. Uh, so that was Old Bridge Rhythm Band that they did perform at the Wild West Victorian Fest in 40-degree weather outside. Yeah, so props to them. But they do have a Facebook page. They're on, not on Twitter or anything that I could find, uh, but they are on iTunes and they are on Facebook. Uh, moving on, my scholarly steampunk collection. I actually did have uh, someone email me uh, requesting to take a look at that. So, uh, Tim, I hope you enjoyed that. 
and got some use out of it. And if you want to know more about that, I go into greater detail about the collection uh, in the previous episode, the Ken Liu episode. Um, just wanted to remind everybody that that's there. If you'd like to take a look at it, you can email me at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com and just put scholarly collection in the subject line. And I will share the Google Doc with you. Okay, moving on to Story Punks. I've told you guys about Story Punks uh, in the last episode, I think, and about Cindy Grigg and how awesome she has been. Um, I interviewed with her last week. We did a little uh, online interview thing. She normally does, or she's been interviewing authors of the different punks, uh, steampunk, solar punk, cyberpunk, ecopunk, dieselpunk ad infinitum um but she actually is is also moving outward a little bit so she's interviewing some not just authors but different people in the movements and she interviewed me um i was really really honored a little nervous because she also um it's video as well as audio um i'm not sure when she's going to post that she said it would probably be at least a month before that gets posted but when it does get posted uh, i am going to cross post here for you guys, it's going to be a crossover, just like we did with Steampunk Connection. It'll be posted, of course, on StoryPunk's podcast feed. And she also posts the video portion on YouTube. So you guys will get to see me in all my glory. Um, I know you're very excited about that. Uh, I looked adorable. So, and Cindy is, she's wonderful. Um, I like her a lot. So go check out the StoryPunk's podcast. Catch up on it. And as soon as she is ready to post... I will uh, pop up a special another crossover here on my feed, and I don't know, maybe we'll do some more crossovers. Uh, get this the steamrollers over here, maybe, or the the ladies, uh, Adder Cop and, and Davenport from the cabaret. Um, I don't know, we'll see. The one thing that I did want to talk about, um, I sometimes go into weird anime. Uh, <laughs> moods, and that's what's happened the last few weeks or so, I, I, I get to where I can't, I, don't, I love anime, I don't watch a lot of it for the simple fact that because I don't do dubbed, I hate dubbed, it makes me bonkers, I have to do subtitled, but because of that, I also have a thing where I don't like to just sit and watch TV, I need to be doing something productive while I'm watching the TV, and when you're watching something with subtitles, it's kind of hard, um, so I, that's why I don't watch a lot of anime, because I don't like the unproductive aspect of just sitting there, I don't know, it's a thing, but I, it's been cold, like really cold, like bonkers cold, we got down to 11 degrees this last Tuesday, the first day of school, uh, it was the 16th, I think, it was 11 fucking degrees, that's crazy for North Texas. Oh, and by the way, yesterday it got up to 75. So, yeah. That's also kind of why the podcast is a little bit late, a few days late. I had baby stocking this weekend and a really bad headache um, because of the dramatic temperature shifts. Um, but getting back to my point, it's been really cold. I've been kind of bundled up, so I was watching a lot of anime. And during uh, the anime exploration that I've been making... I, there's two that I ran across. One of them I had heard about a while back and just hadn't had a chance to watch yet, uh, Clockwork Planet, and it's fantastic. Um, the description, this is the description, at an unspecified point, unspecified point in time, 
Earth collapses. Despite it being almost inevitable that humankind would definitely die out, a genius engineer known only as Y manages to rebuild Earth entirely with gears and clockwork mechanisms and renames it the Clockwork Planet, and it survives. Uh, by the time the show starts, a thousand years later, and all of the original cities of Earth, the countries, they're floating inside this gear world. Um, and Nauto is uh, Nauto. He is a high school student who can hear everything. He can hear the gears in the earth, essentially. Um, and he knows when something's wrong. He knows when when something's not aligned correctly. And I, all of a sudden, a crate crashes through his apartment, and it's Ryuzu. She's a broken automaton who was part of what's called the Initial Y series um, that were created by Y himself. Um, and now Cho can tell that she's something's wrong with her, and so he cracks open her chest plate. And it's all very sexy, of course. She's very pretty, and you know, she's actually I really love her costume design. Um, but he cracks her open and fixes her little clockwork heart. Um, fixes her in about three hours, even though she's been broken for just over 200 years because nobody knew how to fix her. Um, and then because of all this, uh, she's promised loyalty to him. He is her master now in the way that these things work. Um, but then they end up running head smack into Dr. Marie Belle Briguet. She's a princess of a noble family, and she's also a part of the Meister Guild. She's a clockmeister. She's a master engineer. She's really young. She's got an automaton herself, her bodyguard, named Halta. And uh, Vaney Halter. And I don't know, Vaney. Um, anyway, they all group up together because they've got to fix the core tower because there's something called a purge when one of the cities goes wonky and it can't be fixed and it threatens the rest of the planet, they will purge it by essentially dropping it down into the core of the planet. It's really hardcore. So they all come together. There's a government conspiracy, blah, 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 yakety schmackety. Um, but they also find another little, um, I believe she's part of the initial Y series. Her name's Anchor. Um, but she is like a, a Terminator bot, but she's in the, the form of a little girl. She's oh, she's so cute, though. So that's Clockwork Planet. It's <laughs> my shitty summary, as usual. It's really good. Highly recommend it. Um, it is grown up, so I don't recommend it for the younger crowd um, or, you know, if you get uncomfortable with, with anime sex, but it's really good. Highly recommend it. The other one, and this one was fucking badass. I don't know how I haven't heard it before. It's called Princess Principal, and it's kind of an analog England called Albion. Um, and during the early 20th century, the kingdom of Albion monopolized a substance called Caverite to construct a fleet of heavily armed warships that made Albion the dominant power in the world. Now, if you are familiar with some of H.G. Wells' more obscure stories, like I believe the story is called The First Man, First Man in the Moon, that's where Caverite comes from. Caverite is not real. Caverite was an invention of H.G. Wells, and it reverses gravity. <laughs> yeah, the story, actually, when you watch Princess Principal, there's a bunch of stuff that happens in there that is obscure H.G. Wells references. It's fucking amazing. It's so cool. Uh, so anyway, there's these girls that go to the prestigious Queen's Mayfair School, um, and it turns out that some of them are... Um, 
double agents because there's the kingdom and the commonwealth and they're fighting and you find out that the comp- the commonwealth had launched what's called operation changeling to put a lookalike on the throne in place of princess charlotte who was like fourth in line for the throne so they have to kill everybody else of course um but it's just it's these five girls including the princess who comes to work with them and they all work in together together um but the art, the the outfits, the costuming in the show, um, the caverite, the way it's used, and they, they use it uh, in their fights and their battles, the way they reverse gravity. It's just, it is really, really cool. Uh, it's a good story. It was a lot of fun. I'm hoping that a second series is going to be launched um, because it was just, it was really badass. And like I said, the, the, the weird H.G. Wells references that they keep making... Uh, that was a really nice touch. And the other thing that cracked me up was it's, it's, you know, it's, it's anime. It, it's from Japan. It's Japanese artists. It's written, you know, by Japanese writers, but they, there is one quote unquote Japanese character in it. Uh, she was going to the school and say, keep making fun of the weird things that Japanese people do. And it was killing me. I was dying. So I highly recommend it. Both of those are on Crunchyroll. Um, check them out. And also, this isn't steampunk, but I have a huge Cardcaptor Sakura fan, and Cardcaptor Sakura ended 20 years ago, almost. Um, the final ones were so long ago. But they've just released a brand new series, Cardcaptor Sakura Clear Card, and it's very exciting. I know I sound like a 12-year-old girl with my love for clamp anime, but anyway, so that's what I've been doing. Um <laughs> And I guess it's appropriate since the books that we're covering this week will be or are classified as young adult. Um, they're still badass. So go check out those animes. Check out Cindy over at Storypunks and see the uh, the Lord's work that she is doing over there. She is working hard and getting you information about the authors that we talk about. Oh, one final cool thing that I wanted to bring up was the fact that after the Ken Liu episode, in fact, just few scant few hours after the Ken Liu episode I got a thank you on Twitter from Ken Liu uh, which was pretty badass I almost died I went into a fangirl spasm um he was very nice he was really cool and it wasn't I mean we didn't have like a deep involved conversation um he's a busy guy but he did tell me that uh, I actually was dead on with my comparison of the wuxia um wuxia to superheroes so i was i was on with that and he he gave me some explanations about batman and a different superhero so that was cool and then the other thing that he mentioned was regarding um chuan yue which i still am not sure if i'm saying that right he did not get on me about my pronunciation so i appreciate that um, but he said as far as this, that the time travel genre that's specific to China and Chinese fiction, he said that there is one um, American book that is, is that is kind of a, fits into that genre, and that is Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. So if you want to understand what that genre is as far as the time travel going back to fix things, that book, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, um, that one fits into, it's analogous to the genre that we discussed. So that was very exciting. Um, I almost died. I loved that. Um, so I think that's it for, I just didn't think I had anything to talk about for the intro, and it looks like I had more than I thought. So there we go. 
Um, I believe we are ready to get started with our Mapmakers Trilogy. Uh, so we're going to hear from Audible, of course, and promos from friends. And then we will be right back to get into some key terms and the summaries for the stories. Uh, so stick with me and I'll see you guys and er, <laughs> I will talk to you guys in just a few minutes. This week's episode of the Steampunk Dollhouse is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. This week, I recommend The Glass Sentence by S.E. Grove. The Glass Sentence plunges listeners into a time and place they will not want to leave and introduces them to a heroine and a hero they will take to their hearts. It is a remarkable debut, and the audiobook includes a PDF of maps from the book. Visit www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod to download The Glass Sentence or any one of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. This week's episode of the Steampunk Dollhouse is also sponsored by the Judgment Night Radio Hour. Are you a fan of audio drama? Do you enjoy classic pulp fiction in the style of Dashiell Hammett, macabre southern gothic stories of the likes of Cormac McCarthy, or stirring drama reminiscent of August Wilson? Then tune in to the Judgment Night Radio Hour. The Judgment Night Radio Hour is an audio drama and fiction anthology podcast featuring lurid, rousing tales of existential angst, metaphysical mayhem, spiritual crisis, sin, repentance, redemption, justice, and judgment. Presented in the style of an old AM gospel radio broadcast, the series is hosted and narrated by the ominous fire of brimstone preacher Reverend Reginald Cephas Weaver III, who gives soul-stirring sermons in the form of Southern Gothic neo-noir dramas, thrillers, and mysteries. Imagine if Flannery O'Connor directed The Twilight Zone with an all-black cast. This sinister series of short stories and radio plays can be found on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find out more, follow their Twitter at jnightradio, visit their website on www.judgmentnightradio.com, or like its Facebook page at Judgment Night Radio. Turn or burn, literary listeners, but don't turn that dial. All right, literary listeners, we are back for part one. So as per the usual, I have some terms for you, uh, and I did get most of these from Wikipedia. Um, Never use Wikipedia as your main source, (laughs) unless you're lazy and you have a podcast. Um, But as I've said before, these are just some good places for you to get started if you're curious about any of these terms. It's a jumping off point for you to do further research. So things that we need to know for the glass sentence... The Golden Specific and the Crimson Skew by S.E. Grove, the Mapmakers Trilogy. Uh, Cartology versus cartography. Now, the term that you're most likely going to be familiar with that everybody knows is cartography, which is the study and practice of making maps. Combining science, aesthetics, and technique, cartography builds on the premise that reality can be modeled in ways that communicate spatial information effectively. Now... The reason that I'm saying cartography versus cartology um, is because in these books, Grove refers to the mapmakers as cartologers, not cartographers. 
Um, the only thing I could find, everything that I'd looked for on cartology kept rerouting me back to cartography. Uh, the only thing I could find on cartology just by itself was just the definition of the creation of charts and maps based on the layout of a territory's geography. So in the book, she does use cartology and cartologer uh, as the, for the map makers, not cartography. It seems to be a difference between an art and a, the art and the science, but I'm not really sure. Um, let's see. Now... Moving on, because this one's going to be really big in these books, is nihilism, because there's a group called the Nihilismians in these books. Uh, also, and I want to apologize uh, real quick for two things before we go any further. Um, one is that I've had some trouble breathing. I have asthma. Um, and the up and down weather is killing my breathing. So if I sound like I'm having trouble, or if I sound like I'm gasping a lot, I'm just having a little trouble with my breathing, no big deal. Um, the other apology I want to make real quick is if there is an excess of background noise in this episode outside of the usual library noises, that is because some of the bunker inhabitants are making a lot of noise today. Um, I think they might be leaving. I'm hoping they're moving out. Anyway, there's a lot of banging going on outside of uh, my door right now. So if it gets a little loud, I apologize for that. Um, small spaces, it's hard to find a good place to record. Okay, moving on. Nihilism. Now, nihilism in the real world is a philosophical doctrine that suggests the lack of belief in one or more reputedly meaningful aspects of life. Most commonly, nihilism is presented in the form of existential nihilism, which argues that life is without objective, meaning, purpose, or intrinsic value. Moral nihilists assert that there is no inherent morality and that accepted moral values are abstractly contrived. Nihilism may also take epistemological, ontological, or metaphysical forms, meaning respectively that in some aspects, knowledge is not possible or reality does not actually exist. The term is sometimes used in association with anime, which means a condition in which society prove, provides little moral guidance to individuals. To explain the general mood of despair at a perceived pointlessness of existence that one may develop upon realizing that there are no necessary norms, rules, or laws. Movements such as futurism and deconstruction, among others, have been identified by commentators as nihilistic. Nihilism has also been described as conspicuous in or constitutive of certain historical periods. For example, Jean Baudrillo and others have called postmodernity a nihilistic epoch, and some religious theologians and figures of religious authority have asserted that postmodernity and many aspects of modernity represent a rejection of theism, and that such a rejection of theistic doctrine entails nihilism. Um, if you've ever seen, the, and that, that's the definition from Wikipedia, if you've ever seen. Um, the big Lebowski, <laughs> I think it's the one guy floating desultorily in the pool, and she says, hey, he's a nihilist. <laughs> so the Germans, whereas the money Lebowski, they're being called nihilists. So if you need like a picture of what a nihilist is, think big Lebowski, Flea and the others. Um <laughs> okay, moving on. I love that movie. Okay. Um, now, this one seems like kind of a weird thing for me to explain to you, but trust me, there is um, a, there is a connotation in the book. Um, Elodia, or Elodia, I'm not sure how it's specifically said, um, but Elodia, or Elodia, it's a genus of six species of aquatic water plants, often called the water weeds, and they are native to North and South America. They're widely used in aquarium vegetation, and they live in fresh water. They can be found in parts of Europe, Australia, Africa, Asia, and New Zealand, and they've caused considerable problems, and they're now considered noxious weeds. Um, 
but the American and Canadian waterweed or pondweed, Elodea canadensis, is widely known as the generic waterweed. Um, it lives entirely underwater with the exception of small white flowers, which bloom at the surface and are attached to the plant by delicate stalks. It produces winter buds from the stem tips that overwinter on the lake bottom. It is also It also often overwinters as an evergreen plant in mild climates. In the fall, leafy stalks will detach from the parent plant, float away, root, and start new plants. This is the American waterweed's most important method of spreading. Now, like I said, this this will <laughs> this will matter in part two, so that's why I'm I'm telling you about the Elodea. Okay, now um, this one matters because um, this isn't specifically mentioned, but there's something that happens in the book that made me think of this, so I wanted to explain this concept to you, um, the concept of a tulpa. Uh, it's a concept in mysticism and the paranormal of a being or an object which, which is created through spiritual or mental powers. Um, in the 20th century, it was adapted by theosophists from the Tibetan sprulpa, which means emanation or manifestation. Modern practitioners use the term to refer to a type of willed imaginary friend which practitioners consider to be sentient and relatively autonomous. Um, whereas you have golems, which are made from clay, created and brought to life through magic slash god slash spirituality slash Kabbalah slash whatever. Um, a tulpa is a thought form. It's entirely, totally, completely a thought form, but it is a thought made manifest and corporeal. Um, if you watch Supernatural then you'll know what a tulpa is from the first season episode uh, with the ghost, the first appearance of the ghost facers and the old man Mordecai in the cabin um, and how the story keeps changing as far as why he's a ghost and what he did before he died. It's because he was a tulpa. And so every time the story changed or every time people started talking about a different version of the story, he would change because he was entirely created out of thought Um or if you watched the new Twin Peaks this year, um, Tulpa <laughs> became the buzzword of the show for the last few episodes of the season. Um, Tulpa, Tulpa, Tulpa. If you haven't watched it yet, I don't want to ruin anything for you, so I won't say anything because um, it's really good. But yeah, Tulpa um, is a big concept in that as well. And so there is a situation, there are some creatures in the book um, that are essentially thought forms they're created and brought about um we'll get to that later now the two other things that i want to explain to you have to do with this world itself that is in the map makers trilogy so the first term in that um area is occident now the western world or simply the west and it refers to various nations depending on the context uh most often including at least part of europe and there are many accepted definitions based on commonalities. Uh, the Western world is also known as the Occident, as contrasted with the Orient, Occidental, Oriental. They're old terms, uh, but Occident's going to be important. Now, the concept of the Western part of the Earth and the Occident has roots in the Greco-Roman world in Europe, uh, Judaism, and the advent of Christianity in ancient Israel. In the modern era, Western culture has been heavily influenced by the traditions of the Renaissance, the Protestant Reformation, and the Age of Enlightenment, and it was shaped by the expansive imperialism and colonialism of the 15th to 20th centuries. Uh, before the Cold War era, the traditional Western viewpoint identified Western civilization with the Western Christian countries and culture that's Catholic and Protestant. Um, its political usage was temporarily changed by antagonism during the Cold War. 
but it literally had a geographical meaning, or it originally had a literal geographical meaning. Uh, it contrasted with uh, Europe, with the cultures and civilizations of the Middle East and North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and the remote Far East, uh, with early modern, which early modern Europeans saw as the East. So in a contemporary cultural meaning, the phrase Western world includes Europe as well as many countries of European colonial origin with substantial European ancestral populations in the America and Oceania. So Occident's going to be important, and we'll get to that in a bit. Akan is also important. Now, Akan are a meta-ethnicity, predominantly speaking Central Taino languages, and residing in the southern regions of the former Gold Coast in what is today the nation of Ghana. Uh, the Khans also make up a plurality of the populace in the Ivory Coast. They are the largest group in both countries. They have a population of roughly 20 million people. And the Akan language, now I'm going to try my best to say this, I think it's Twifonte or Twifonte. I'm not sure. Um, it's a group of dialects within the Central Taino branch of the Potu Taino subfamily of the Niger-Congo family. Now, the reason that I'm telling you about Akan is because a large number of Akans were taken captive to the Americas, and many people of African descent in the Americans have partial Akan ancestry, especially Jamaicans. During the 18th and 19th centuries, Akan slaves were all referred to as Coromantes. So, those are going to be important. Um, the reason that they're so important is because this world that we're about to discuss of the Mapmakers Trilogy... Um, it's centered, not centered in, but the, the primary characters live in what's called New Occident. But uh, one of them has family roots and a deep connection to a place called New Akan. So let me give you the summaries of the books. Um, the Glass Sentence is the first one, and it takes place in Boston in 1891. And Sophia Timms um, is a young girl. I believe she's 14. Uh, she is from a family of explorers and cartologers who have been traveling and mapping the New World, and the reason that they are doing that in 1891, when you'd think that there wouldn't be much to discover, alas, you would be wrong. Um, this world of this book was radically changed by something called the Great Disruption in 1799, when essentially the entire, <laughs> the entire world, it's like somebody picked up the globe and shook it, and everything just kind of fell down, and the world ended up with what they call new ages or new eras, um, different time periods. So what essentially they were left with new Occident is what it ends up being called, encompasses kind of the eastern seaboard of the United States. Um, the western half of what was the United States uh, becomes the bald lands, and it largely seems to be what would have been um, Hispanic population, but there's also um, South America is now late Patagonia, um, up in Canada is the prehistoric snows, so not only is everything different as far as the type of countries that they were, they are different as far as the time periods, because New Occident, again, is 1891, um, the prehistoric snows are prehistoric, but, you know, late Patagonia um, and then over in Europe, you've got the Papal States, I think, which encompass like Spain and Italy. Um, they are of an earlier time period, an inquisitional type time period. Um, 
England is now the closed empire. <laughs> so the whole world is, I mean, is, it's different. It's crazy. Everything has been shaken up. Um, so the U.S. has become essentially the bald lands over to the west and down into Central America. Um, and then over to, it's, it's almost like down the middle of the country. Um, and then we've got New Occident, which is the eastern seaboard. We've got the Indian territories. But we've also got New Akan. And New Akan is the country that was essentially, that was founded when the Great Disruption happened. Um, immediately in the aftermath, there was a great revolt and slave rebellion. They rose up and they f- took back their freedom and founded their own country of New Akan. Uh, it's a very strong nation. It is a very prosperous nation. It encompasses most of the southern uh, the southeast portion of the United States, New Orleans, um, all up, up into that area, Mississippi, Alabama. Um, now, there is some issues with the Indian territories, New Econ and New Occident, um, infighting and some problems going on there that will come up later. Um, so that is the world as it stands. Now, when we start in 1891 with Sophia Tim, she's 14, um, eight years before the book starts, her parents had left... Um, left her with her uncle Shadrach, and they went off on an urgent mission. Uh, they received a letter from a friend. They went off um, out into the world. I think they went to the Papal States, and that was all that anybody really knew. Um, so she, Sophia wants to find her family. And then her uncle gets kidnapped, and she has to – well, she doesn't have to, but it's a 14-year-old girl, and she's the subject of a book, so of course she's a little heroine. Um, she had found a boy – um, ostensibly from the Baldlands, who was being used as a circus sideshow. She was fascinated with him. He managed to get away, and he escaped and was coming to find her uncle because her uncle's world famous. Everybody knows who Shadrach Ellie is. He was coming to find her uncle to get help going back to his home in the Baldlands. Um, but he shows up right when uh, Shadrach's been kidnapped. He becomes friends with Sophia, and they work together as juvenile heroes always do, and they save the day. Uh, but a whole bunch of <laughs> a whole bunch of stuff happens. Um, they set out to find him because he tells her to go find someone named Veressa. Well, they don't know what Veressa was at first, but they find out. Um, but along the way, they become friends with pirates, the coolest pirates, the most polite pirates you'll ever find, Calixta and Burr. Love the pirates. Um, so they're doing all this. They're running away from a group called the Sandmen, who were nihilismians, because the nihilismians believe that the world as it is now is obviously not the real world, and they tra- are trying to return to what they call the Age of Verity, which was pre-disruption world. Um, so that's what happens in this book. She gets Shadrach back. All of these amazing things happen. We learned about things called the Mark of the Vine and the Mark of the, the Mark of Iron, which people are born with. Theo is the mark of iron. He's got a iron, which means their skeletons are metal. And the mark of the vine, which comes out in some people in their skin and their hair. Um, a princess in the bald lands has vine wings, which sound really cool. So all of this is happening and going on. And Sophia has, you know, is out of her element for the first time in her life. She's out of Boston. She's exploring and she can't find her uncle. And an important thing to remember as we go through all these is that Sophia has um, a time anomaly built into her. She has no internal clock is the way that she describes it. Um, so she and she learns how to actually utilize this skill later, kind of like the whole thing in um, 
the Sherlock Holmes movies where everything stops and he sees everything in like, you know, 360 degree bullet time. And then he makes his move. That's how Sophia is. She can do that. She can stop and she can see five hours ahead. She can plan her course five hours ahead in the space of a minute, but it, it, she doesn't know how to use it at first. And so all of a sudden she'll, she's sitting on the bus and then she realizes that she's been on the bus for six hours and completely missed her stop. But she will learn how to utilize it later when she meets an older woman um, on Burr and Calixta's boat who explains to her that she is without time um, because she can't travel by boat without getting violently ill, she, she also finds out. Um, and the explanation for this is they think that all the smart people think that all of the ages have are mingled in the oceans. Um, so she's essentially moving through multiple periods of time and it's making her ill. Um, it was really interesting. So they go to the bald lands and Shadrach ends up there too because of his kidnapper. Um, and there are things that they're not fighting against, but there are things called lacrimosa or the lacri- the lacrima, sorry, the lacrima who are without faces. They're faceless creatures who just wail and keen. They're almost like kind of like banshees. Um, you can't escape them. You have to run far, far away to get away from them. Um, so, and that will, those will actually be incredibly important later too. So she gets her uncle back. Um, they all go back to New Occident. Theo, uh, they take in Theo and he learns that his mark of iron in his hand isn't a bad thing to be, you know, hidden or embarrassed about. Um, it's just another weird mark of the disruption world. Um, now Sophia starts to study with her uncle, studying maps because, uh, there's some information that they receive about her parents. Um, so the next year in the next book, The Golden Specific, it's 1892. It's the summer, and uh, it's been about a year. And Sophia and Theo have been getting along, but Shadrach gets sucked into a government appointment, and so he's not paying as much attention to her. And while she is a great kid, she is still a 14-year-old girl, and her uncle's not really giving her a whole lot of attention. Um so Theo is apprenticed to a friend of theirs called Mike. Oh, and I forgot to mention um, one of the important things, and we'll also go into this deeper detail in part two. But Sophia um, is at the very least mixed race, and that is clear because of the fact that one set of grandparents were uh, part of the founders of New Akan. So we know that our little heroine is not white, um, which I thought was refreshing touch. Um, so yeah, they're... There, it's, it's mentioned that quite a few of the people that they know that are in New Occident, um, either they bought homes in Boston because they had the money, because they made so much money from the founding of New Econ and what a prosperous place that became. So race isn't really brought up as, well, this person is black and this person is white. It's more of, I just assumed that she was. Um, that's what I pictured when I, when I read the book. But again, we'll get into that in part two. So like I said, she is a uh, mixed race. 14-year-old heroine, uh, which is, again, a nice, refreshing thing to see. So in part two, Theo is working now with a dear friend of theirs named Miles, uh, who is another cartologer, and he's apprenticed to him. Um, But again, something bad happens. Sophia finds out something really important about her parents, a really important piece of documentation. But the Nihilismians have what are called archives um, with material that's from the age of verity. Because things, that's the weird part of all this, is that things do show up from what the world was supposed to be. Uh, that's called Drek. And some of it's very important and tells 
vital information. And so she's finding things out about her parents um, at the Nihilism Lesbian Archive, which she actually had to law and commit, or had to break the law and commit fraud to get into. Um, so she finds this out. She's trying to tell Shadrach. Shadrach is so busy with the government that he doesn't have time. He can't deal with it. Um, and part of that is because there's a very terrible man named um, Broadgirdle who is uh, part of the government now. And He's causing problems for Shadrach. He's causing problems for everybody. He knows Theo. Theo knows him because of the bald, from their time together in the Bald Lands um, when Theo was a slave. So that's going on. So essentially what happens is <laughs> Sophia finds out that there's a, her mother's diary before she went missing. Um, she wrote a diary, and her diary is in the Nihilismian Archive in Seville in the Papal States. Um, or in Granada. I can't remember now that I said that. But she has to get across the ocean. One of the Nihilismians is being really, really helpful. Her name is Remorse because they picked their names out of the, their holy book. And so well, some of them have some really goofy names. Um, but Remorse is helping her. Remorse says, well, I have to go on a mission to the Papal States anyway. You can, you know, sail with me. So Sophia was just going to go. She was going to take Theo and they were going to go. And, you know, screw Uncle Shadrach because he's not paying attention. Um, <laughs> but on the day that Sophia gets on the boat, again, she goes through her little... Um, losing track of time thing, when she realizes what's happening, Theo's not there, remorse isn't there, and the boat is sailing, and she finds out that remorse never had any intention of getting on the boat, but Theo's not there because a body has been left in Uncle Shadrach's house of another, uh, of the prime minister, and, uh, and I'll explain the politics later, of the prime minister, his body, his murdered body has been left in the house, and Shadrach has been framed for murder, um... And Theo was hiding out, so he didn't get it. But um, he didn't get into trouble. But Shadrach is arrested, and so Sophia is sailing away to the Papal States all by herself, um, and nobody can get to her. So they they'll get messages to the pirates to try to find her. Um, but while she's there, she finds out some more of her more information about her mom. Um, she meets two amazing people, um, Errol and Goldenrod, and another one. Um, another young woman who will help them out and find out what's going on. And so she gets more information about her parents and she'll get a map that will supposedly lead her to her parents. That, ta- oh, and uh, Shadrach is eventually let out. He makes a deal with Broadgirl. He's let out of prison, but a war has begun. Broadgirl has started a war. Theo was arrested for um, hiding evidence when all this went down, like I said, so much, this is one of those books where so much shit happens that it's really hard to summarize. Um, so that's what happens. Theo ends up going to war. Shadrach is working for Broadgirdle as the, um, cartol- as his cartologer. It's a whole big thing. Sophia goes with Errol and Goldenrod. They find what they're looking for. She gets a map to her parents, uh, or to their, where they might be. And they end up sailing off with Richard Wren, who is from what's called the Age of Encephalon. It's essentially Australia, but it's way, 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 way far ahead of all of the other ages. So theoretically, they're not supposed to mess around with the other places. They're just supposed to study them because they're not supposed to fuck anything up. Um, But he sails off with them and Burr and Calixta and Goldenrod and Errol and Sophia, and they all set sail to go help her find her parents. And then the Crimson Skew starts in um, just in August of 1892, just a few months later. Um, Sinkholes are popping up all over Boston. There's things called wear winds that are tearing up the bald lands. Um, 
she lands in New Orleans and or they land in New Orleans, but there's people after all of them. Um, Richard Wren is being sought by the age of encephalon. Burr and Calixta have people after them. Um, Sophia ends up going all the way to the Erie Sea um, to find her parents. She'll be reunited with Theo. <laughs> there's a terrible thing called the... It's called it's this crimson fog that's causing mass hallucinations and causing people to kill their families and loved ones. Um, that's why it's called the crimson skew. And oh my god, it's fucking bonkers. It's so crazy. Um, and so Sophia finds will find her parents or at least their fate. Um, it's kind of hard to explain. You just have to. It's one of those you have to read it. Um, but it was. They're so good. They're so good. Um, <laughs> there's so much shit happening. So that's the general, um, a general summary before I start really going into um, the important stuff that's happened in the book. So that will wrap up part one, um, as usual, half-assed, but I do the best I can because I love my listeners. Um, and we'll kind of break down in better detail, the politics and um, the social politics and everything else that's happening in this situation. So we are going to, as usual, take a pause, hear from some of my friends and listen to a lovely, lovely song. And then we will be back in just a little bit and we will break down the books and why I like them so much in part two. So stick around. We've just discovered a very rare bit of audio from former Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Let's have a listen. I, Winston Churchill, wholeheartedly believe that the Clockwork Cabaret is the finest example of steampunk radio programming. Never before have I heard anything quite so marvellous, and I doubt I shall ever hear anything like it again. Calpurnia, continue on your journey broadcasting your marvelous music and sail on to glory. If you would like to find out more about this program, please check out clockworkcabaret.com or clockworkcabaret.podbean.com or follow us on Twitter at clockworkcabaret. That's C-L-O-C-K-W-R-K cabaret.
Are you a steampunk? A Victorian goth? A weird west enthusiast? A sky pirate? Or just steam curious? If so, then join the Texas Steampunk Connection as we review and enjoy steampunk books, movies, comics, games, films, and events all over the great state of Texas. Come along with your hosts, Flavio, Erica, and Thax, as we enjoy steampunk adventures and share our discoveries with you. Something, 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 hats, corsets, boots, etiquette, pistachios, teapot, bollocks. Find us on Facebook and fanboytv.com or wherever you find podcasts. <laughs> Goggles, gear, something, something, and always, always mind, mind your, your gauges. gauges. Hello, this is Mike the Storycrafter from the Steamrollers Adventure Podcast. And I... You are not Agent Copperstocking. You're my clinker cohort and co-host, RBY2187. The name is Robbie, and thank you for ruining my top-secret steampunk literary agent name. Can we just... Can we just get on with the bumper for Agent Bluestocking, please? You are listening to the Steampunk Dollhouse. Get read your rights. We need to talk. What? Alrighty, my literary listeners... Welcome back. That was This Is Where Time Goes to Die by Wayfairy. And you can find that along with all of their music on the freemusicarchive.org. Now, on to the Mapmakers trilogy. Um, what we will eventually find out through the books is that this disruption that happened... Um, they think at first some people think it's techno you know it was a future technology that did it nobody's really sure what happened um but we find out later that there are things called on earth called climbs c l i m e s uh, and they are comparable to gods and apparently the climbs were having a war as godlike creatures are want to do and that's what caused the disruption it was a massive fight between these otherworldly, not even otherworldly, I mean, they are of this world, this elemental battle, that's what threw the world into disarray in 1799. Um, and it is in disarray. I mean, it's it's crazy because what you end up with, some of these places are, like I said, Boston or New Occident is for the most part the way it should be. There are some things that are different, um, but it's kind of moved along you know boston didn't get thrown back into another time boston continued on the same path or the same time period but things were different than you know as far as people's actions and activities um but little changed as compared to say the bald lands which are massively different now and have you know people with plants growing out of them and people with metal skeletons so it's it's a very different situation. You know, you've got the papal states, which are almost kind of in an inquisition period. And also keep in mind that the disruption happened almost 100 years ago. Time didn't stop in these places where it changed. Everything changed, but time is still moving forward. So when this happened, so the papal states has moved on 100 years from when this happened. So it's not like everybody stopped evolving. They're just these cities and states are evolving and changing um, in different ways now. And so this, I mean, there is obviously a strong element of fantasy to this um, because, and my assumption is that the world obviously was not like this 
before the disruption that something happened that fractured all this and that caused places like the bald lands to rise up. But that's never really clear either. Um, but, well, no, it is because there's one point where um, a piece of drek that is found um, from the Age of Verity, it shows that Shadrach Eldi was still a cartologer, but he had mapped, um, he had drawn maps all the way out to places like California. And when they're looking at this, they're like, what is California? <laughs> so things are not the way they're supposed to be. And all these ages or eras or climes are now there. And so you're literally traveling from, you know, com- through completely different worlds when you move around. And obviously this causes some consternation and confusion and problems about how to deal with things. And what do human beings do when confronted with things that they don't understand? They usually turn to racism and xenophobia um, because that's how human beings are, unfortunately. So what happens is um, the way the world is set up now, or at least the world of New Occident and the world of Boston. Boston is um, – the political body of Boston is a parliament and there's a prime minister um, – but it, the way it works, it's <laughs> we talk about modern politics and about how you have to, you know, be, you know, ha- you have to have a certain amount of money to play the game and to get people to listen to you. Well, in Boston, in New Occident, uh, they aren't even coy about it. You literally, if you want to speak before Parliament, you literally have to buy time. It's not a joke. You have to buy time. Um, so the politicians are the people that can afford it. They're the ones that can afford to become politicians. Uh, parliamentarians can afford to become parliamentarians. And what's happening as the book is opening up is that um, Boston has decided that it's going to – There's now keep in mind these books were written a few years before uh, our current administration in the White House um, – there is a push to close the borders of Boston, or actually close the borders of New Occident, um, and not allow any more foreigners to be in New Occident. Essentially what they want to do, it's called the Patriot Plan. The borders will close, no foreign citizens will be allowed in, and the ones that are there will have to leave. If you do not have, and everybody, uh, I forgot to say the other thing, everybody in New Occident has is what's called a life watch. When they're born, they're issued a life watch and then they have their papers. And it's literally a watch. I mean, it's 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 engraved with all their information. Um, if you don't have that life watch and you don't, and you have to have both. If you don't have the life watch and the papers, you will have to leave. And for some people, like Shadrach Ellie's housekeeper, Mrs. Clay, who is actually from the Baldlands, this is a problem. She doesn't have papers. Uh, she's essentially a refugee. She was fleeing, but what we find out later is a lacrima. Um, because once you hear the song of the lacrima, it will continue to follow you. Um, apparently, they couldn't go past the borders of, New, uh, of the Baldlands, or this one couldn't. But again, that'll come up later. Um, we'll find out more. So if you don't have papers in a life watch, you are going to have to leave. And eventually, it's going to be so so that you can't the citizens can't leave. Um, it's it's terrible. Uh, it's very locked down. It's very why do we have to have those people here? Um, and what we start to see, they're they're being sent out, quote unquote, voluntarily at first, um, but they're going to be deported. And so what you're seeing is, and again, these books were written a few years ago. 
um, families being split apart by, you know, because the ones who were born here, the ones who were born in New Occident could stay in New Occident. You know, if a wife was born in New Occident, she can stay. The husband maybe never became a citizen. He's got to go. Families are being split apart. Um, there's one sad, and I listened to the audiobooks for these, and so I actually almost started crying. Cause there's one scene where grandma is being deported um, because she wasn't born here. So, you know, her children were, but she wasn't born here, so she has to go. Um, and there's, you know, when these laws are made, and too often people are not thinking about the, the human cost of these laws. So anyway, the, the, when the book starts, it's because of this. Shadrach is speaking in front of Parliament about how terrible this, this plan is going to be. But Shadrach, Shadrach can only afford to buy four minutes worth of time. to sp- And he couldn't even buy it. Somebody had to buy it for him because he didn't have the money. Uh, one of his uh, friends bought it for him so that he could speak. And actually his opponent the one who's pushing this plan, he was able to buy like a half an hour. So yeah, really rich. So like I said, they're bald faced about it. It's none of this namby pamby, you know, we're going to be coy and pretend that money doesn't matter. No, they're, they're, they're open, open and upfront about it. You have to have money in order to play the game. Um, now, like I said, at this time, things like Drek, called Drek are being, um, are always being found that show what the world was supposed to have been like. Um, now, into all of this, there comes someone, like I said before, his name was uh, Broadgirdle, a politician named Broadgirdle. Uh, his real name was, well, the name that he used that Theo would know him by was Wilkie Graves. Um, and what we find out later is he became a Sandman, um, which is the Nihilismians. The reason that they are called Sandmen fucking horrific um there's two different two different reasons one of the reasons is that they're with through their leader blanca um they are able to take people's memories um it's involves sand in a globe in your head and it's really awful um and it basically hollows out your mind and takes all your memories but they're also they have these scars on their cheeks, and we find out later it's because there's a bonnet. Well, they call it a bonnet that's put on this thing that's put on their head, and a bit goes in the mouth, and there are sharp, sharp wires um, that curve up along the cheeks. And the more it's tightened, the more if you fight it, it will cut into you um, because this is done to Shadrach. Shadrach doesn't get scarred by it, um, it but he's. It, he does have the bonnet on for a certain period of time. Um, and that's why they're, they're the Sandmen. They're the Nihilismians. They're terrible people. They fight with, like, grapple hooks. It's awful. Um, and they're very non-emotive. It's not like they're angry or it, having fun with what they do. They're very non-emotive. They're just... They're like automatons. They're terrible. Um, so this is also going on. And the reason is is because Blanca is trying to get back to her world. And we find out later Blanca is a lacrima who actually came back to herself um, through torture. So we've got xenophobia. Um, we do have... The racism doesn't really... It's not really... It's not about color so much anymore because, like I said, in places like the Baldlands, um, it's the mark of the vine versus the mark of iron. Um, the mark of iron is considered barbaric and savage, and um, they're terrible, and you know they're they're horrible people. And so that's why Theo tries to hide his because his hand is scarred from 
doing things, you know, using his, his, his iron hand for stuff. But the, the rulers of the bald lands are mark of the vine. And some people, and they say that some people, you, it's only a little bit, you know, like the tips of their fingers or whatever. And some people, it's their full body. Um, the reason that I brought up, well, hang on, we'll get to that in a second. Let me keep going here. Um, now, as far as um, New Occident in relation to New Akan, as I said before, New Akan was formed out of a slave rebellion. Uh, it went on to produce sugar, rice, cotton, um, completely, it, it is completely governed and almost completely populated by um, free people of color, former slaves. Um, obviously, there are white people that live there too, uh, especially in New Orleans, but it is, the basis is this freedom from slavery. They rose up in the in the chaos and the aftermath of 1799. They took, ba- took it back. They took their power um, they became very influential, and Sophia's grandparents, I believe it's her father's grandparents are the ones that helped found New Akan. I think her mother's family was already in Boston at the time, because, I mean, Shadrach's, the house that Shadrach lives in is the family house. It's been there for some time. So I think it's her father's family that um, were part of the slave rebellion. So as I said, Sophia is a mixed-race child. But the race doesn't really, it's almost like there's so many other things going on, and there's so many other, <laughs> because you have like the stuff with the ball lands, with the mark of the vine and the iron, um, you'll have the people that I brought up earlier, the when I the reason that I brought up the, the Elodia or the Elodia earlier, is because there are people in here, They at first they keep calling them the Erie, everyone refers to them as the Erie, as in the Erie Nation, um, Native Americans. But we find out later that they're actually two separate groups. There is the Native Americans known as the Erie. There is a group of people that live in close proximity to them and are very um, withdrawn from society and very mystic and um, mysterious and enigmatic. They're actually the Elodians, um, and they are from a different age as well. They came to this place. They ended up settling near the Erie Sea. um, But they are... They're beautiful. Um, Errol, a character from the second book, will often refer to uh, will often refer to uh, Goldenrod, who travels with him and Sophia um, in the Papal States. He refers to Goldenrod as his his fairy, um, and she doesn't generally appreciate that. She's most definitely not a fairy, um, but she does have greenish skin. She's very beautiful. But the the, the special thing about the Elodians or the Elodians, is that they produce flowers out of their body. Um, Goldenrod produces golden flowers. And what she'll be able to do, there's a a plague of sorts in the Papal States, and she is able to um, help to cure that by spreading her flowers through what's called this this dark age. She's able to spread her flowers through there and to help it and stop it. Um, And we'll get to... And the other thing I wanted to bring up first, though, about new... um, New Occident and the nation, or about the American nation, or what it was, the American nation. Um, there's also the nation of Iroquois has gained great power in this country. So things are, are, are different. Um, and so in many ways, you wouldn't necessarily want to go back to the way it was supposed to be. 
Um, but there are people who do want to bring that back, and that does include Broad Girdle. He um, he is a Sandman. He believes in the Age of Verity. And so what he's actually trying to do, it's impossible to reverse the disruption, but he's trying to move the country in line with things that are supposed to be happening um, and aren't necessarily bad that they don't happen. So those are the the Elodians. Um the other thing I brought up before was the Age of Encephalon, um, Australia. It's far into the future, and they kind of move around. If you ever watched Fringe and you remember the Observers, um, they're kind of like the Observers with Australian accents, <laughs> but they move around and they just kind of observe. They're not supposed to get involved, but Richard Wren, um, he ends up rescuing Sophia's parents on the way to the papal states and becomes, you know, he, they, they know something's up. They're smart people. They know something's up with him. He ends up confessing to them who he actually is and about the age of encephalon. And he gives them this uh, device, this watch, I think it was, and told them, you know, if you need help, hit this and I'll come help you. And they, they do because they do end up in trouble. They do end up in jail um, for carrying the, for witchcraft because they didn't get the plague. Uh, they're in the papal states. They end up in jail, and they do hit the button, but he's not able to come to them. They find out, or he'll be he'll tell Sophia later that he himself was being held prisoner for assisting them. Um, so we've got that. We've got the so what's supposed to be the the unobtrusive observers and. They're not supposed to get involved, but it's people. You can't help it. Um, so the Papal States shows, to a certain extent, again, the dangers of human fear uh, and, and what can happen when we don't understand, when we don't take the time to understand something. Um when Sophia goes overseas and she finds out that there is a plague, um, and there's actually a cleric, oh, and Christianity isn't really, Jesus is never really brought up, uh, that's the other thing, so it's not, it's hard to explain, but that's, it's it's not, I don't think it's ever really referred to as Christianity, um, but there are clerics in the Papal States. One of them is waiting for when people get off the boat, everybody has to get checked, they're asked questions about whether they're... Uh, filled with ennui and despair and, you know, don't listlessness uh, because that's apparently what this plague is. You just you kind of lay down and don't do anything else. Um, it's kind of like one of the drugs I was on a few years ago where I just, I didn't want to move. You just kind of sit there and don't do anything. That's kind of what this plague does, but it's, it can be passed from person to person. Um, and so everybody tries to, to stay away from it. Um, now we've got, you know, Sophia in this city that she doesn't know, you know, thousands miles, thousands of miles away from everything that she's ever known. She's all by herself. And when she got off the ship, she was informed that there was this <laughs> this big earth-filled box, like a planter box, um, that was sent along with her apparently by remorse. And she doesn't know what this thing is. So this poor kid is pushing this box through the streets of Spain or what is Spain. Uh, and then she sees, she keeps seeing her mother too. That's the other thing. She keeps seeing what she thinks is the ghost of her mother. Um, it's actually leading her where she needs to go. So while they're in the Papal States, so she'll meet Errol. And what actually comes out of the box, uh, Errol is from the closed empire, uh, Britain. Um, he's looking for his brother. His brother disappeared much in the same way that Sophia's parents disappeared. So Errol's looking for his brother. He's a, a hunter and a marksman and a swordsman. And he's very dashing, um, very stoic. And he's got a, 
a bird named Seneca. Um, so he wants to help Sophia. Just a nice guy. He wants to help her. And then all of a sudden, after Sophia takes the box and puts it in the sunlight for a while, the box flies open, and there's Goldenrod, the beautiful, beautiful Goldenrod, the fairy-like creature. Um, and she can see what this plague is. It's almost like a possession, like a ghost possession. Um, so she drives it away, and they go to this place that's their... Um, they're, what they're looking for is called Ocentinia. It's where the maps are, and they're special maps. They're maps that will take you where you need to go. Um, they're weird maps. They're different maps. Um, but the problem that they're, that, that's happening here is that at the edge of the Papal States, or kind of within it, there's a thing that's being called the Dark Age, and it's very terrible, and it's very dark, and it's where the plague is emanating from. Now, there are creatures that are patrolling along the edges and borders of this dark age. They're called four wings, and they're, they have four wings. They have big glowing lamp-like eyes, and the four wings scared people. <laughs> so people started hunting the four wings, and they hunted the four wings almost to extinction. And that caused, because what you find out later is that the four wings were created as a, a, to feed these possessing ghost things that are creating the plague, those things were supposed to stay within the Dark Age, and they were supposed to feed off of the Four Wings. But people were slaughtering the Four Wings, and so these ghost-possessing things were able to move out of the Dark Age because they needed to feed on somebody, and they would move into surrounding cities and towns and possess people, and then people died. They wasted away. Um, so instead of, you know, and like I said, it's, it's, it's a matter of not, it's striking before you get the information. It's strike, it, it, it's, it's striking out at something that scares you without trying to figure out what it is or why it's there. And to a certain extent, you can understand it. I mean, the whole world went insane and went crazy. And for the papal states, when they... The disruption for them is that they're in this medieval almost time period where superstition still reigns. Witchcraft, the belief in real malevolent movie-style witchcraft still exists. So it doesn't occur to them to try to investigate and find out what the four wings are. They just start killing them, and so they cause the they not that they cause the plague, but they allow the plague to spread. So misinformation. Um, allows a virus or a plague to spread. Um, that has real-world connotations, too. So one of the, like I said, racism, not such a big thing. This book, the reason that I like these books so much, um, and they don't necessarily fit in with the other things that I cover, it's not such a hard-hitting um, <laughs> wallop of social commentary. Um, it's a little different. The, the thing that, like I said, it, it's very timely as far as the, you know, the, the city trying to close, or New Occident closing down and not wanting strange people in. Um, we're seeing that every day. We're seeing that right now. Uh, every day there's a new story about a family being ripped apart by uh, ICE. I just read another one today of a man who came here from Poland when he was five, and he got a permanent resident card, and he doesn't even speak Polish. He's a doctor. He's married. He has children, and he is in detention right now, and nobody can say why because he's a permanent resident, and he's married to a citizen and all that good stuff, and people are just... <laughs> 
people are being rounded up willy-nilly, and it's it's barbaric and it's insane, and this is not the way that things should be done. And I know a lot of people are, are surprised, seem to be surprised by things that are happening right now. But America has always had. Look back in our history. Um, we didn't like French people back <laughs> the turn of the 19th century, the Alien and Sedition Acts, and we've always been this way towards, and a lot of countries are. It's not just that it's America. A lot of countries are, but it is so virulent here right now with the shithole country remark, and, you know, I mean, and I know you know what I'm talking about. We all know what I'm talking about, um, in which the beauty of that remark is that even if he didn't say it, it doesn't matter because it's something that he would have said. We all know it's something that he would say. So even if he didn't say it in that moment, everybody's going to believe he said it anyway because he's such an asshole. So that's what you get for being an asshole all the time. People are going to say shit about you, and even if it's not true, they're going to believe it. Um, Don't be an asshole. But I am rambling in this episode. I don't know what's going on with me. Um... I think it's because these, like I said, these books don't have the, the, the punch, the political punch that most of the ones that I cover do. I think that I like these so much, again, for one thing, because we do finally have uh, a heroine who is not white. We have a young girl who's got to save the day, um, and she will be able to speak to more than just, you know, white girls like me growing up in the suburbs. Um and she's brilliant, and she's clever, and she has flaws, and <laughs> she's too good for her own good, and she will have to learn how to, you know, lie occasionally to save her own life. Um, but one of the, the big things about this book that I think is interesting when we've talked about time travel before um, and you know, whether to change things and whether it makes it better, these books are very driven by the idea of fate and free will. Um, do we follow our own path or are we driven along a path? And the other side of that, if prophecies are real, do they have to be fulfilled in one specific way from start to finish? Or are there multiple ways to fulfill the prophecy? Because that's what it seems like when you, when when they go to Ocentinia, the map, I, I, they're, called, they're called maps. I mean, they're quote-unquote maps because they're riddles. They're rhymes. They're little stories about how you have to go here and you have to do this and you have to do that. But as she's reading it and she sees that there may be different ways to accomplish what is in the map, in the riddle, in the prophecy... So does prophecy exist, and can we fulfill it in the way that we best see fit? And if so, is that still a prophecy? Did we take, you know, did we use our free will? Um, or were we being led all along? And it's it's an interesting concept, and one that I think is... You don't, you're, you're still not really sure at the end whether, you know, they did use any of their free will, or whether she was just following a set path. Um, but it was really well done. And the, the biggest thing that I think about these books, the, and again, these are young adult books, so they're not going to be as hard-hitting. Um, but something that I found really, really refreshing, 
about these books was um, the sheer abundance of just really kind and compassionate people that Sophia encounters. Um, you know, you, series of unfortunate events or Harry Potter, you know, there's villains around every corner and, you know, bad people constantly taking advantage of these poor children, you know, these poor orphan children. Um, but Sophia just meets a lot of really good people who just want to help her and who give her hope. And something that is one of my favorite TV shows is Once Upon a Time. And the real, I like it because it's got badass princesses who take care of themselves and save their prince, you know, as much as the prince saves them. But as I've gotten older, as cheesy as it sounds, the concept of hope, the importance of having hope in the face of terrible, terrible odds has become so important to me. Um, It's part of the reason that I stopped watching Walking Dead because there was no, there's never any hope and I couldn't take that anymore. I've, I've gotten, I don't know, part of my jaded maybe went away, but that's, these books are so full of hope because even though, you know, there's a bad thing happens, the bad thing happens, but there's something coming along to help and to make it better. And it doesn't fix... I mean, she she finds her parents, but her parents are all but dead. They're, they're essentially shades by the time that she finds them. And she's able to speak with them and tell them about her life so far and laugh and cry with them um, before they find... They, they've been waiting for her to find them and then they'll fade away. So it's not... You know, nothing, things don't always come out perfectly. People get hurt in these books. People die you know, and some of these things, and because there, there are Matt. One thing that I haven't covered, um, which is a much longer, it's going to make the show much longer. Um, so I'll just briefly talk on it because um, I want you guys to read this for yourselves. Maps are very different in these books. Maps are fucking amazing in these books because maps are not just printed, folded up, stuffed in the glove box of your car. Maps. There are maps in glass that are only revealed through sunlight or moonlight. There are maps on linen that are only rele- are only revealed with a you know a puff of air. Um, there are maps on wood that need smoke to bring them to life. There are memory there and they're called memory maps. They are amazing. Um, there's a, a piece of antler that is a map. She when she holds it and she dreams and she sees uh, the memories of this moose named Nosh. So it's, the maps are a whole new aspect. So Sophia not only knows the story of what happened to her parents, Sophia lived and viewed the story of what happened to her parents. She viewed it through a memory map of the, the sheriff, the, the officer who sent her parents into the dark age um, as punishment for witchcraft. She saw it happen. Uh, so it's... She sees these things, and it's it's very special. It's a very different world. But then she also sees things that give her hope and keep her moving. And the way that people come together to work together in these books, you know, she's she's told that the falconer and the hand that blooms will be by her side, which is Errol and Goldenrod. <clears throat> and they stay with her, and, you know, um, the pirates that they meet, the polite pirates, Calixta and Burr, they're just really good people. Um, you know, Shadrach, and when they get to the Baldlands in the first book, and they meet Veressa and her father, 
who are mark of the uh, mark of iron and um, Mazapan, the chocolate maker in the bald lands, who continues to send them gifts later. There's just good people. There are bad people doing bad things. There are people who are doing their job and realize that what they're doing is wrong. And there are good people um, that just want to help. And I think we see so many bad things in the real world, and it's always been that way. But what we need to remember is that there are good people, too. There are good people that exist in this world. And we can be those good people. And what we never really know is how our actions, the good actions that we take, will affect the life of someone else. Um, You pay for someone's coffee in the morning because they don't have enough change, turns out. You pay for their coffee. You go on your way, and that's it. You don't think about it again. But that person whose coffee you paid for, maybe they needed that coffee to fuel them up because they were on their way to a job interview and they get this job and they're able to do amazing things with their life and save the world. You don't know. You don't know. And you don't know how your bad actions will affect someone either. But the good actions, the good things that we do go forward through time. Our good actions carry forward through time, whether we realize it or not. Even the smallest thing can make someone's day a little bit better, and in turn, they make someone else's day a little bit better. And that's not bad, and that's not naive, and that's not Pollyanna. It's just just hope. And I think right now that's something that we all need to have a little bit more of. Um, So I do... There, and there's so much more in these books that I, I haven't even covered yet, um, but I can't. There's too much. Uh, you have to read it. And these are actually, I don't say this a lot, but these are some that I would actually really love to see made into movies uh, or a TV show. I think they could be really, really, really well done. And again, it would give us a chance to see uh, you know, a, a, a heroine of color who was destined to save the day. I mean, we've got Wrinkle in Time coming up, which I, I'm excited for, but we need to see more of that. And I think Sophia is is good for that. Um, so I'd, I'd like to see these turned into a television show or a movie. I think they'd be beautiful. So I've already run on for 33 minutes talking about flower people and hope. <laughs> like I said, I know this book's a little different from what I usually talk about. It doesn't have the same punch, um, but it is still important. And if you're wondering what the steampunk aspect is, there are crazy-ass devices and machinery and um, a lot of clocks, lots of clocks. But I think, to me, the, the steampunk aspect comes in for me with the uh, the creativity and the maps. Um and just the, the aspect of that, the, the weird, crazy aspect of the maps that are used. So I know this isn't, like I said, it doesn't necessarily fall into the usual canon of what I do, but you know me. Um, I don't like the usual, uh, and I don't like to say what steampunk is or isn't. So for me, these fit the canon. I think they're beautiful. I think they're really well done. Very exciting, very entertaining. The audiobook is brilliant. Um, and the maps are included with the audiobook, which is cool because I highly recommend looking at the maps. So uh, take a look at the Mapmakers Trilogy by S.E. Grove, The Glass Sentence, The Golden Specific, and The Crimson Skew. 
um, because there is much more than I can really um, talk about and, you know, do a proper coverage of. But they're beautiful. They're smart. They're funny. Um, a good heroine. Good characters. Her uncle is brilliant. I love him. So take a look. Give him a read. Give him a listen. Come find me on Facebook or on Twitter. Uh, tell me if you agree with me. Tell me if you didn't agree with me. And if you didn't, tell me why. You know, tell me what you thought of him. Um, and I think that's it. So uh, thank you for listening to me. And I hope you enjoy. Do you have foreign engineers building your railroads? No, yeah. Foreign bankers holding your debt? No, yeah. Foreign gunboats in your harbor? <laughs> then you need Mohammedan and Salaspi, chartered purveyors of bespoke modernities since October 18, 1860. We know Reaper Drone is the new Gatling gun. We know Intermodal Cargo Container is the new Opium Chest. We know the early 21st century is the new late 19th. And we are here to modernificate you against it. So, delay no more. Visit us in the intertubes at www.mohammedanandcelestial.com At Mohammedan and Celestial, when we hear the great powers invoke civilization, we chamber around in our C-96 on your behalf. If you like what we've done here, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Even if you don't use iTunes to listen, you can still rate and review as long as you have an iTunes account. Your opinion really does matter, and it does have an impact on how many people can find us. I also want to gently remind you guys that I do still have a Patreon, and I would ask, as usual, that you remember that I am a one-woman show, and uh, for something as simple as what I'm doing, it can get really expensive. Um... I don't know how many regular listeners I have, but if even just 10 of you donated a dollar a month, that could ensure that we could be supplied with some really good stuff for several months to come, and you'll get some pretty good stuff for your patronage. I'm still kind of working on it. I haven't really put anything out as far as information-wise because I don't have the capital to back up what I'd like to do, if that makes sense. Uh, so, you know, work with me, guys. Come on. Um, and if you don't want to do a monthly thing, there are links on the website to uh, allow you to do just a one-time donation uh, through a different system. So you have different ways to do it. And your patronage would mean more to me than you can know. Um, but, again, my ability to do this show will depend on you and your support. And the library is depending on you. And... With that guilt trip, we are done. We'll see you in two weeks for Walk Like a Wind-Up Egyptian or How to Throw Sand in the Gears of Ordinary Steampunk with the anthology Clockwork Cairo, Steampunk Tales of Egypt, edited by Matthew Bright. The Steampunk Dollhouse is a Wind-Up Girl Studios production and bears a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. It is written and produced by Elizabeth Hedrick. Production assistance, artwork, and moral support provided by Matt Davis and Josephine Davis. Transmission alerts provided by Library Field Agent Copperstocking. Our intro music is Baby I'm Not Your Lady by Singin' Sadie. Our exit music is Goodnight by the Knickerbocker Quartet. These songs and all other episode music can be found at freemusicarchive.org. 
All episode sound effects can be found at freesound.org. For complete attribution, see the show notes or visit our website at spdhpod.com. Living in a shithole country that you didn't know was a shithole country until an asshole from a shithole country called it a shithole country? Contact us for assistance at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter at spdhpod. And finally, we thank you for tuning in. I'll keep reading your rights for as long as you keep listening. Blue stocking out. Gimlet. Hither. Outwit. <laughs>